0: Whether we won the national championship or not, I was always gonna love those
1: guys. We were where we wanted to be when we were at the field with each other.
2: I still believe that the 2018 Oregon State Beavers was the best baseball team in
1: college World Series history.
3: Some of those moments, I still get the chills just reminiscing about some of that stuff. I just kind of got the chills thinking about Kaden's single and Trevor's home run. I think those will live on
0: for longer than any of us are going to be around just because they're such epic moments in baseball history.
4: I've never seen a team like the 2018 team. They were so clutch in every single moment.
5: Pat Casey and his teams, the golden era of college baseball.
6: Morgan State and the experience that I had as a student athlete, it absolutely changed my life. A lot of it was Pat Casey.
7: I say this quite a bit. If an individual's will is is strong enough, it can become a team's will if there's enough individuals willing. We had some guys that figured that out.
3: Those are legends who were on that 2018 team. I mean, that
8: many first-rounders in the same lineup. The strike one pitch, grounded into right field. Base hit. Nick Madrigal scores. Caden Grenier will motor to third. Trevor Larnick delivers an RBI single. Nobody out for Adley Rutschman
0: that team it's like there was a constant level of greatness that was to be upheld
9: From 1994 through 2018, the Oregon State baseball team experienced plenty of change. About 300 players filtered through the program, 1,364 games were played, five athletic directors oversaw the department at various points, assistant coaches came and left, games were won or lost, or on six occasions, tied, the stadium was rebuilt. But through that whole time, the volatile 1990s, the burgeoning 2000s, and all the way up to 2018, there was one constant. A head coach in terms of a job title, but a winner in terms of spirit. He won 900 games at Oregon State, no more, no less. That makes him the winningest coach in Oregon State athletic history. 116 of his players have been drafted, and he was named National Coach of the Year five times. This man is pat casey
10: i would lead off by saying he's just a great molder of men
11: pat is just the ultimate competitor you went to war that's who you wanted in the bunker with you
1: i'd say pat casey is great my first impression of him is
12: this guy's a winner you know he's gonna make us winners
6: What Pat Casey built was a a family. And by family, I mean, forget about me, I love you. You know, I think collectively all of us kind of have some sort of Pat Casey in our souls, and so that's who we are.
4: He could easily be the coach of the century.
7: I've never had one player ever come back and say, gee, I wish I wouldn't have worked that hard.
9: Never. Pat Casey was hired as the head coach of the Oregon State baseball program in 1994. His predecessor, Jack Riley, had done a commendable job, but many of the tough circumstances he faced were still relevant for Pat Casey. Facilities were lacking. Recruiting to Corvallis, Oregon was arduous. The team had not made the postseason in nearly a decade. Any sort of national recognition? Yeah right, just having a conference that wanted Oregon State to be a member would be nice. But Pat Casey turned Oregon State baseball into a national powerhouse. It wasn't immediate. His first 10 years, Oregon State didn't make the postseason once. Then in 2005, they not only made a regional, they advanced to the Super Regional and then became one of eight teams around the country to advance to Omaha, Nebraska for the College World Series. Oregon State had not made the College World Series in 53 years. The Beavers were eliminated after two games that season, but remarkably returned to the College World Series the very next year and the year after that. Winning national championships, both times. Gundy
8: ready, the 1-0 pitch. Flack, a fly ball to left center field. Tyler Graham moving in. Graham is there. The Beavers are the national champions. He makes the catch, and it's over. The Beavers have won the national championship. Final score, the Beavers 3 and North Carolina two.
9: Pat Casey helped build a college baseball dynasty in, of all places, Corvallis, Oregon, where an ostensibly podunk program deep in the forests of the Mid-Willamette Valley turned college baseball upside down. This is Dynasty in the Woods, the story of beaver baseball. My name is Josh Warden. I'm an Oregon State broadcaster and reporter, and I'll be your tour guide through this podcast documentary series. Over the next few episodes, we'll go in-depth on Pat Casey's career. Then we look back at the history of the program and when it was nearly disbanded, followed by a thorough reflection on the 2018 season and the reasons why that team was so successful. This first episode is a bit long, over an hour, but don't worry, not every episode will be this lengthy but there's plenty to talk about when it comes to Pat Casey. So here is episode one titled Case. And by the way, most players don't call Pat Casey by his full name. They just say Case. Same thing for the players too. Stephen Kwan becomes Kwanney. Jake Mulholland becomes Moley. Okay, you get the idea. So here is episode one, a case study on Coach Case.
13: This thing's way bigger than baseball way bigger than baseball, and I wish more coaches saw it that way. I think it's one of the reasons why we win so much.
9: Pat Bailey was the head coach of George Fox University in Newburgh, Oregon. His program won the Division III National Championship in 2004, and a few years later, he considered joining Pat Casey's staff at Oregon State. But before he agreed to come to OSU, he had some preliminary
13: questions. Back when I first came on in 2007, when Case and I met, one of the questions I asked him, I asked him, I said, I "Know you're the head baseball coach, but I want to know what business you're really in."
9: Pat Casey remembers that meeting. His answer was the man-building business.
14: In order for a kid to be a very productive, very successful baseball player, student-athlete, and eventually go on to be a a father and husband, we had to build the man. We had to do it from the ground up, and we had to have similar ideas
13: of what's right. I think there's a lot more to baseball than just coaching baseball, and he said he was in the man-building business. We probably ended up spending, I don't know, probably close to an hour just talking about that. What does that mean? Being be in the man building business? Because that was a really important question that I had to ask. And I think baseball for me is a mission field for building men of character and helping men to become, if they choose to get married, great husbands, they choose to have children, great fathers, and be great community members and, and great examples.
9: That is why, as we go through example after example of players who were impacted by Pat Casey and his coaching staff, we'll go deeper than just how Pat taught footwork or bunting or anything technical like that. To start, we're going to focus on one defining quality Pat Casey had in excess. One quality that determined the type of coach he became. I think that the guys we
5: had back then and even, even into the future as they went, but the guys that had success... We're tough people. You got tough or you got out, because there was going to be a high bar.
9: Dan Spencer came to OSU in 1997, the first of 11 seasons Spencer would coach alongside Pat Casey in Corvallis. When I met Pat, you could tell right away that he had an edge. You can call it toughness, you can call it an edge, you can call it aggression, competitiveness, whatever it was, Pat Casey possessed it. As for how that impacted his players, there's two primary examples I'll use of players on the 2018 team. One story showcases the type of coach Pat Casey has always been. The other illustrates the coach Pat Casey learned to become. Example number one, a pesky left fielder from Marysville, Washington.
6: When I showed up, Everything that I stood for and believed in was stripped away from me and I was remolded into a different person and I'm talking strictly mindset. I'm talking about the attitude behind our lives is what changed for me and and it was a lot of what Pat Casey taught me.
9: Kyle Novak arrived at Oregon State in the fall of 2014 as a walk on and things were hard on Kyle from the start. I'd say it was probably really
6: that first three months or so. I mean it was fall ball. That was really where I struggled the most.
9: Something about Novak's demeanor, skill set, or potential led Pat Casey to believe the coaching style that would get the most out of Novak was, well, aggressive. He would say things to me, he
6: would talk me. Whenever he came around, I, I can't even explain it. Pat Casey's almost like Darth Vader. He, he's got this energy and this presence about him that when he walks in a room, you don't even see him yet, but you know he's there.
9: Sometimes Kyle Novak felt like he was being coached by the dark side and he got pushed to the edge. Assistant coach Pat Bailey remembers Kyle seeming pretty lost at times.
13: Kyle Novak, his first year here, he came up to me one day and he goes, Bails, I don't even know why I'm here. And I said, Kyle, you might be here for reasons way better than baseball. And I really believe that you're brought here for a reason and you'll find that out as you develop here in our program.
11: Kyle was questioning what's going on. Why does coach hate me? Do I belong here?
9: This is Bob Lunderberg, who is covering Oregon State baseball for the Corvallis Gazette Times. He's heard all the stories of Pat Casey telling Kyle during practice he should go enjoy the bench because that was where he'd spend his time during games. Or if Kyle made a mistake, Casey would tell him to stick his head in a jar. Kyle got the nickname Jarhead due to that comment.
11: It was stick your head in a jar and stare at it or or something like that. I think if you talk to Coach Casey or Coach Bailey or Kyle, you would get a slightly different version of the story. But the crux of it was that he thought too much. Kyle was an overthinker. By jamming his head in the jar and staring at it, it was a way to think less. I I
4: have no idea if that worked or not. I don't really know if it's possible, but it certainly is a funny story. He wasn't easy on anybody. Noby definitely probably had it worse than anyone because of how much Case tried to get in his head like his freshman year and stuff. Being out of it, being removed
6: as many years as I am now, I understand a lot of it. I do. And since becoming coach, I get it. But in the moment, I truly, I wasn't mature. I didn't understand.
9: Kyle Novak wasn't ready for Pat Casey to come after him like he did, so Kyle had to get ready.
6: And that's exactly what Pat did. He challenged, not me physically, but he challenged Every single ounce of my
14: mindset. I always tell guys, you can't change the man until you change the mind. And so I think it all starts there. I think you better have a tough-minded young man. You got to have a young man that understands that doing things right aren't always easy. But if you just do the right thing next, you know, the next right thing, just do the right thing, you know, that eliminates a lot of gray area. Kyle Novak did
9: have a mindset change along the way, and he can describe it now aptly, because Novak has since become a baseball coach himself, and he has a sociology degree. So he's familiar with the biochemical responses involved with fear, or in layman's terms, the fight or flight response. The whole time that I
6: struggled with Pat, the first four months, it wasn't easy. But there was this voice, this whisper deep inside my soul that would say, stand around fight back, compete, keep going in. And that's exactly what I did. Basically, it was like a test. This kid's either gonna pass the test or he's gonna fail the test. It was either or. And you know, it's a lesson that I've learned that at the end of the day, the only person we can control is ourselves.
9: After the tedious fall practices, Noback started to taste the fruits of perseverance.
6: We got back from Christmas break. I was the walk-on, so I wasn't guaranteed a roster spot. So we were practicing and I, uh, one day I officially found out that I made the roster. So I went up to Case, you know, and uh, I felt pretty good. You know, I had endured a lot of adversity. I thought the coach hated me. I made the team, I felt worthy. All I ever wanted to do since I was a kid is win a national championship. And I go up to Coach Casey and I look at him in the face and I go, Coach, you know, I, I get it, I understand. You want me to be good, And he turned He looked at me into my soul, and you know what he said? He said, son, I don't want you to be good. I want you to be great.
9: For Kyle, that was actually a huge breakthrough. He finally realized that through all the vitriol and seemingly malevolent taunting, Pat Casey was really keeping Kyle's best interests at heart.
6: From that moment forward, I no longer viewed Pat as being a threat. I viewed it as a challenge.
8: Pat Casey and Kyle Novak got off to a little bit of a shaky start in their relationship. Jason Quick wrote a tremendous profile about that relationship. Now, Novak and Casey, I mean, Pat Casey said, you went from a guy who wanted to fight me to a guy who wants to fight for me.
11: And I think that if he probably asked Pat, maybe he'd say at times he was slightly a a little too tough with Kyle in certain areas, but you know, it was obviously all for the best because it ultimately did bring the most out of Kyle. It clearly worked for him because he realized that Coach Casey wanted the best out of Kyle, and that the best way to get the most out of Kyle was to be really, really hard on him because he was the kind of guy that could take it.
9: Did you know for sure that he would rise to meet that challenge, stand up and and make that difference? Or did you ever think he might break and not accomplish it? Well, I
7: I think I had a pretty good feel that this guy was a pretty tough character. But I also knew that he needed to understand that that isn't the only piece of the the puzzle. And I guess there might've been a time or two where you feel like, hey man, I hope he, when he goes to bed tonight, he understands, I really think he can
9: play. Pat Casey put Kyle Novak back through a roller coaster, and in the midst of that, one of the people who helped Kyle was one of his summer league coaches, Max Gordon, who had played for Oregon State a few years prior and knew exactly how to handle Case.
4: We ended up developing this relationship, and as I was coaching him, I was just telling him, like, look, man, like, you want to know how to handle Case? Don't ever let him walk all over you. That's the first way out of the lineup, and that's the first way, like, he loses trust. Like, you got to get right back at it. I was like so don't be scared and I was like and it's gonna be scary you're gonna be freaked out and you're gonna be like not wanting to do it but you just you gotta man up you gotta walk through that door and you just gotta like lay it out there and tell tell it how it is.
6: You know, Max Gordon, I mean, I I think the crazy thing is, is everybody talks about family and really Oregon State is family. Forget about me. I love you because they all know how difficult it is to play there. But they also know how it is, is when you break those limitations on yourself, how good of a feeling that is. Because then you leave the place and you realize there are no limits. I can do whatever I want to do with my life with enough time, effort
9: and dedication. Max Gordon's advice had been to fight back. And fight back Kyle did, all the way to a regular spot in the lineup and some huge plays in clutch moments. No
8: pitch on the way. is a line drive, base hit to right field. Lourdes scores. The ball game is even. Into third base goes Rutschman. The Beavers pull even with no back coming through. It's a 3-3 tie.
9: Noback earned honorable mention all Pac-12 his very first season at OSU, which was just the beginning of a tremendous career with the Beavers that culminated in the 2018 season. As for Noback and Coach Casey's relationship, they've remained close well after Noback played his final game for Case.
6: Our relationship today is awesome. He texted me on, on Easter. He said, Happy Easter, Noby. I miss the energy, the fight, and the spirit that you brought to the Oregon State baseball team. Never again will there be more Warriors in one room unless this country goes to war.
15: I take most everything I want to be is from him, I would say.
9: Darwin Barney is now a coach at Oregon State. He was also a star player on the two national championship teams for Oregon State in 2006 and 2007, winning both national championships with Pat Casey.
15: You know, he's a little bit more high-strung than I am, but he's authentic. The biggest thing about Case is when you're authentic, players will respect you. The only players that had problems with him were the ones that I feel like, this is my personal opinion, that I feel like he felt like he cared more than them. He's given up his time away from his family. We're still young without him. And if he felt like he cared more than you, uh, they weren't going to get along.
9: Fun fact about Pat Casey, he spent 31 years coaching baseball. And of those 31 years, zero were as an assistant coach. If you ask him about how he developed his coaching philosophy, that fact plays a big role.
7: I think it's unique in the fact that um, I never was a coach for anybody else. I was a player in professional baseball. I got released uh, June 22, 1987, and probably 10 days later, I was the head baseball coach at George Fox. So I had to create my own system. I had to create my own identity.
9: Pat Casey could have learned a lot as an assistant coach, sure. But, if anything, being a head coach right away made him rely more on who he naturally was as a person rather than imitating coaches he worked for. So the qualities you see as a coach were all the more vivacious because they were so authentically and unapologetically true to himself. And his natural coaching technique? Well, you heard the Kyle Noback story. Pat Casey coached that way from the start. They used to have like early morning workouts, like case would be obnoxious and try to get him up at like 5 AM or like 530 and they have to go hit in the morning. This is from Pat's early days as a coach at George Fox University. Zach Taylor, who played for Pat at OSU, remembers Pat Casey sharing this story one day during practice. Case was saying that he was pissed
0: off at one of his players because one of his players complained that it was too cold. So he gets up there early and shut off the heater in the morning. So now they're hitting outside. You're in Newburgh, so it's just so cold. He told all the guys is like that someone was complaining. So the heater doesn't work just so we got to grit through it. Like we got to do this kind of thing. And I'm like, you're crazy
9: for that. <laughs> As you can tell, Pat Casey does not have a problem egging on his players a little bit, pushing their buttons and challenging them to be stronger. The tough part is balancing aggression with compassion. And Pat Casey became known for being harsh, but doing so in a way that didn't drive the players away.
12: Yeah, as a coach, you always want to have a practice for the coaches and the games for the players. Case towed that line. Sometimes he he wanted to ask you why you got out and get in your face and challenge you in the dugout during games a little bit. But that's just who he was. And he did enough on the other end to have that balance to where guys wanted to win for him. They wanted to die for him. and and ultimately that's why he was great and we were great and you know, his legacy lives on. He wasn't
4: easy on anybody. That's one thing that you just you knew and you had to expect because he also loved you more than anybody. So he just wanted to win. He wanted to get the most out of you.
5: If he was asking something of a kid, there was a reason that he was getting into a guy. The kid might not have really registered him right away. Initially, they're pissed. They don't want to hear it. And then they think about it. And then they realized, hey, he's right. Those are pertinent questions.
9: I have to grow up. What Dan Spencer just described is a narrative many players have experienced over the years, including former OSU pitcher Jake Thompson. It was a weekday game. I was struggling. He said, he came out
2: and said, you are not a Pac-12 pitcher. And I forget what happened in that game. I ended up finishing the inning, got pulled or whatever. But I remember on the bus ride back. He sent me an apology text and said like, you know, I'm sorry, I, I was just trying to give you some fuel to that and whatever. I was like, you know, it's totally fine. I know you didn't mean it,
16: you're just trying to help me out. Even after practice, if he's in your face, you know, he's gonna come up to you afterwards and talk to you like a man and not just hide from you. He just has respect for players off the field. We could get
17: mad
9: and yell at each other for a minute and then be good to go and we're back at business. Pat Casey had the same gruff authenticity with his players, the coaches, the umpires, even the maintenance staff.
8: I tell you what, just get out of his way sometimes.
9: (laughs) I learned that. The groundskeepers learned how to handle Pat Casey and when to get out of his way. And this particular groundskeeper knows a thing or two about high-level competition himself. Back in his playing days at OSU, Jess Lewis was an All-American football player and a two-time NCAA wrestling champion.
8: He was such a, uh, not demanding, but demand. You know, he, he just, he had that energy and that strength. And I, I just really admire that, that fella.
9: Admiration is a hard thing to gain for anybody, especially the people who are more of the combative type. Pat Casey's son, Brett, played for Oregon State and remembers plenty of episodes of his dad sparring with players, but not letting it spiral out of control, most notably with a catcher by the name of Mitch Canham.
16: Him and Mitch always, when I was playing, they'd get into some battles pretty good but then my dad always obviously has the most respect for Mitch pretty much of anyone out there.
9: Mitch Canham played on the 2006 and 2007 National Championship teams. Canham is now the OSU head coach, and during his playing days, he was such a leader that many of his battles with Pat Casey would often occur when Pat was yelling at a different player, and Mitch would intervene to give Pat some of his own fire.
16: He'd get in my dad's face a little bit, hey, you know, take it easy, I got it, I'll handle it. I remember one time, <laughs> my dad was getting after me pretty good, and Mitch came over to me. He goes, don't let him do that to you, man. You got to get back at him a little bit. (laughs) Did you get back at him a little bit? Oh, there was a couple times, yeah. We had some battles, too. How'd that go? (laughs) Um, How'd that go? Not well. (laughs) No, it was, uh, I think my dad liked to see some of the fire.
9: It might not feel great in the moment, but when Pat's players stood their ground, usually a mutual respect would develop. Kyle Noback, for example, he stuck with it and had his mindset transformation. Kyle was far from the only player Pat Casey did something like that with.
3: I was pretty soft my freshman year, and I honestly couldn't stand Casey. I couldn't stand Yeski my freshman year. I thought they were just out to get me,
9: hated me. Ben Wetzler became an All-American pitcher by his senior year, but his freshman season in 2011, he did not get along with Coach Casey or pitching coach Yeski right away. Wetzler would get so caught up in everything he was doing wrong. I mean, freshman year, when Casey makes a beeline for the mound, and it's not Yeski coming out for the pitching meeting, you know you messed up. Wetzler would later learn to stand tall and rise to meet the challenge of a situation like this. But at the time, he handled things with less resolve. My freshman year, I'd just cower down and kind of be like, oh, Case is mad at me. And then I'd get scared. Wetzler felt like Casey was just out to get him, and honestly, the reason was probably that, in one sense, Casey was out to get him. But what made it worse is that Wetzler didn't meet Casey halfway and push back a little bit, so it just felt like Coach Casey was attacking him ruthlessly. Looking back on it, Ben Wetzler diagnoses himself with what he calls,
3: This kind of soft mentality where it's like, no, they were challenging me because they knew how much better I could be. And I wish I would have known that my freshman year, but it didn't end up hurting me because it did kind of transform into those years after that.
9: So here's the tipping point that deserves some scrutiny. What happens when a player stops letting Case bowl them over and start to fight back? Does it blow up into a raging argument or does something good happen or both? I don't know if
3: Case will admit it, but I think he likes when guys stand up to him And so the next time he came out there, it brought out that fighter mentality. He knew
9: when I'm at my best, I'm kind of that fighter. I'm that bull on the mound. If Ben Wetzler is a better pitcher when he's in fighter mode, that means standing up to Pat Casey could be a good sign for him. But standing up to Pat Casey also means there's probably going to be conflict. I remember one at Stanford. It was
3: basically a captain's meeting with me, Jake Rodriguez, Nick Conforto, Danny Hayes,
9: and some of the older guys, we had just kind of gone on a skid. Wetzler felt something needed to be said, so he stood up and addressed the coaches directly. And I kind of stood up and I go,
3: you guys need to sit in the corner of the dugout. You coaches don't say a word. Just let us go play this weekend. And we went up and swept Stanford, and I don't think it went the way Case would have liked, but it I mean, it turned us around.
9: Now it was Wetzler being the alpha male in the room. Although, even when the tables were turned on Pat Casey, the wily veteran coach was always at work.
3: He's smart with that. He would sometimes use our anger at him to fuel us on the field. Pretty smart psychology, but it worked a lot of the time.
9: It's so funny when players get mad at a coach, but then sometimes to prove the coach wrong, they work hard and play well and ultimately succeed. It works
3: but, right in the coach's favor.
9: Right. It's like <laughs> for his for his own benefit.
3: Oh, yeah. I mean, it, it was such a stark difference, especially, I mean, freshman year, like I said, I couldn't stand him. Sophomore year, we go to LSU. I remember there's five of us that after that regional, we walk into his office and beg him to come back. He was talking about retiring and we're like, dude, we are too close, and we need you.
9: Ben Wetzler had gone from hating Pat Casey to hating the idea of playing without Pat Casey. 30
14: years ago, I would never dream of a player telling me he loved me or me telling me I loved a player. It happens all the time now. And now, you know, it's meaningful because the fact that there's times when players get pissed off at you, and they should. And if they don't, then you're probably not doing your job. Kind of like being a parent. If you want to be friends with your kids, you're probably going to end up raising their kids.
9: Ben Wetzler saw both sides of that, being angry with Case and then coming to love the gut. And by the way, Casey did come back after that 2012 season and helped lead the Beavers to the College World Series in 2013. That trip to Omaha is largely remembered for a near home run by Danny Hayes that would have turned the tide against Mississippi State and OSU fell just short of the championship series. But still, Oregon State had once again proven that it was one of the best programs in the country.
3: If it weren't for Mississippi State in that short right field, we probably would have a ring on our finger, but whatever.
9: Ben Wetzler said he's not sure if Casey would admit that he likes when players stand up to him, but I'm pretty sure that's true. Take another example from fellow pitcher Jake Thompson when he was throwing particularly well one game in 2017. I'm
2: throwing hard. This guy gets a jam shot, base hit. Next guy... I walk on like it's a full count and I like threw like three sliders or curveballs that were in the zone that were called balls and he comes out there and he's like hey he basically said you can't be doing this like you need to pick it up whatever I'm like I want to say like I'm throwing well I'm throwing
9: everything where I want it Jake Thompson believed that Pat Casey had the situation all out of order so Jake geared up to prove his coach wrong next three guys I strike
2: out I scream towards our dugout Everyone got fired up and I forget if it was that game or the next game I threw. He said something to like start picking it up or whatever. And I kept reminding him after each inning, how many zeros were up there and there ended up being seven zeros. And he just kind of laughed and smirked. If you wanted to challenge me, I was ready for that challenge. and I was ready to talk smack.
9: If Pat Casey loves being stood up to, it's because players who do that are usually taking charge and being aggressive, qualities that Pat is a big fan of. But it's easy to gloss over the first part of that narrative. It wasn't like Kyle Novak's difficulties were on day one and then he turned the corner on day two. This period of time, whether for Kyle or the countless others who Pat Casey has pushed to the edge, often lasted months, maybe an entire season or more. Mental realignments are not easy. A lot of things baseball players work on like hitting in the cage, fielding ground balls, they don't require a lot of philosophical self-reflection. But changing someone's entire mindset, that takes a lot more work. What if things went wrong? What if Pat Casey and his assistant coaches pushed Kyle Noback or Ben Wetzler to the edge and then over the edge? How did Pat Casey know how far they could go? Case
6: is unbelievable at pushing you more than you think you can do in pushing you mentally and physically and emotionally. He'll push you to that ledge. And I think that's
0: what kind of Kyle talked about is you know, he'll push you right to that ledge, but he'll never let you go over the ledge.
6: Pat knew dang well that what he did to me, he couldn't do to somebody else. Or there was somebody on the team that if he did that to him, it wasn't gonna work. That's why he was so incredible. He could see it.
0: I think that's a common theme that you see amongst a lot of great coaches and leaders throughout sports and you know life is that they are so
6: good at knowing a person, figuring out that person, what makes them tick, and then tailoring their approach to get the most out of them. And Case was the first person that I'd been around for an extended period of time that really opened my
0: eyes because he was so good at it.
9: Third baseman Michael Gretler saw Pat Casey coach Kyle Novak and have the coaching finesse to cradle his player's psyche with care. There's another reason Pat Casey was willing to push Kyle Novak to the edge. It's not worth it to waste time waiting around, seeing if a player would become great on their own. If he didn't get that person out of me in that short amount of time that we had together, then I was
6: gone. And that's really how it works at Oregon State. If you didn't perform, It's tough. It's next guy up. Like, that's just the culture there.
11: They're going to continue to recruit talent around you and
9: behind you. So if you're not holding up your end of the bargain, someone else soon will. Broadcaster JB Long points out that OSU has plenty of guys who want one of those coveted nine spots in the field. Either Kyle Novak has to rise to the challenge and earn it, or Pat Casey can choose someone else. But Case wasn't about to let Novak be mediocre. If Pat Casey did coach players hard, he also coached them with a lot
11: of love and would be the first to have their back. And based on the work that I saw him put in each day and each year, I don't think it would be unfair for him to demand a whole lot of his coaches and his players because he was showing up every day to do his part
9: as well. That makes sense logically, but in the moment, it's easy to get caught up in what that looks like from the outside. There's a lot of conflict, enmity, maybe a couple yelling matches. Some people see conflict as a sign of unhealthiness, as if any dispute or argument is inherently toxic and useless. Pat Casey vehemently disagrees with that notion.
14: Should it be a perfect mix all the time? Hell no. Should you be uh, at odds once in a while? Heck yes. Absolutely. Should players get ruffled feathers once in a while with one another? Heck yes. Should everything be smooth? Heck no. I mean, come on. Nobody goes through life like that. That's not part of it.
9: Pat Casey doesn't mind conflict, as long as it's the first step to something larger.
14: A really important part of that is that that's not the ultimate. The the argument or the disagreement or the little scuffle, that's not the end all. That's just our passion to get after and to compete.
10: I couldn't imagine being where I am without him having somebody drive me like push me down expect the most out of it like that's something I feel like everybody needs in their life He's just a very unique and special man to that
9: center fielder Stephen Kwan remembers plenty of times Pat Casey got after him with some measured anger. Oh, absolutely. (laughs) I'd give him a lot of reasons to be mad.
10: I think to a point, maybe the word is too strong, but like it disgusted him that I just had such little faith in myself. So he would just have that look on you like, really, Kwani? Like, you're not getting this bunt down right now. Like, do you believe that little in yourself? Maybe it's looking too deep in it, but I I saw in that look, it's like, no, like, he's right. Like, I have zero reason to not believe in myself.
1: Yeah, he was hard on us, and we were like, dang, lighten up maybe at some points, right? But it's just like because of his mentality and his grit, it became just a part of, like, who we were as a team. There's a couple scouting report
12: meetings up in the hotel that, you know, coaches are getting into it a little bit. And, uh, you know, I think he saw what we had, and he just was going to make sure that we weren't going to mess this up on the coaching end.
1: A lot of the uh, Casey stories are very intense, but he always ends up letting you know that it's coming
9: from a good place. That became a regular part of Pat Casey's coaching cadence. Break him down, then build them back up. The method Pat used to do so sometimes sounds over-aggressive and truculent, but Pat wasn't born yesterday.
16: The way people coach now is different, you know, there's a lot of things you can't do now that you could do back then. What did Pat change? Oh, I mean... I've heard crazy stories,
9: man. Being Pat Casey's son and a former OSU player, Brett Casey, has witnessed a lot of classic Pat Casey moments. And the ones he didn't see firsthand, he's probably heard about it.
16: I heard an earring story there. Some guy had an earring back in, I don't know, the late 90s or something on one of his teams, and he practically ripped it out and told the I mean, I don't know if he actually ripped it out, but that was a story that I heard because he wasn't any earring guy and you do that today. It's easy. Might be breaking get fired. <laughs> My
3: high school pitching coach played for him at George Fox. Heard stories of him dropping pitchers off and making them run home after bad outings.
9: I doubt he could do that now. <laughs>
3: huh. And he's completely changed, and he's mellowed out a lot. But that competitive fire is still runs very, very deep in him. I mean, I remember him breaking his arm, falling off the roof, setting up Christmas lights, and he comes into weights with a broken arm and goes up to our trainer like, what do I do? Trainer goes, why don't you go to the hospital? (laughs) You have a broken arm and you're driving to the weight room.
9: That's who Pat Casey is. He doesn't want the hospital. He wants to be in the gym and on the playing field. It doesn't even matter which sport it is. Pat Casey has always been a competitor, not just in baseball.
14: I had not decided what I wanted to do in college. I really wanted to play basketball, but baseball was probably a better future. Pat Casey chose to attend the University
9: of Portland in large part because even though he was on a baseball scholarship, he could also play basketball. It only worked out to play one year, but he did play in the 78-79 season for a pretty good Portland Pilots team.
18: He had one year of playing basketball at the University of Portland. I covered that team
9: dwight james longtime journalist currently with nbc sports northwest goes way back with pat casey
18: so i've known him since he's about 18 or 19.
9: so what was your first impression of pat casey back when he was 18.
18: i actually thought he was kind of a fun-loving guy he was on that team as a walk-on he was there to play baseball but he was pretty good and he didn't play a lot but i think he shocked everybody with how well he could hang with those guys It wasn't long before James saw Pat
9: Casey as not only a fun-loving guy, but also an intense competitor, both when James would watch Pat Casey in his pro baseball career in the Coastal League, plus Pat's early coaching days at George Fox.
18: When he was at George Fox, I took the opportunity to watch some of his teams play because he had really good teams. I loved the way he ran his teams, how disciplined they were, they played the game the right way, a great coach, a Hall of Fame coach, no question.
9: Even though Pat Casey took the job at George Fox after officially finishing his pro baseball career, he wasn't yet done with his athletic pursuits in basketball. When he was at George Fox, he was actually playing on the basketball team there
0: and coaching. So first off, I feel bad for the guys who are playing basketball.
3: I've heard a lot of the stories when he, because he was playing basketball at the time there, and I heard a lot of dirty stories of him playing basketball. He played center at 6'1 or 6'2. He was very rough. He's an amazing
9: basketball player. I guess there were stories of him and Danny Ainge coming up and battling. When Pat left George Fox to come to Oregon State, he kept playing basketball, mainly in pickup games at Gill Coliseum amongst athletic department staff. I went in to watch three,
12: four times during the course of the year. They'd have a noon pickup basketball game. And I honestly thought at that point in time, this is not, you know, like super complimentary of the Oregon State basketball team in 1998,
9: 99. But I really felt like Pat could still play on the team. Keep in mind that in 1999, Pat Casey turned 40. guy's in phenomenal shape. And he'd just be down there running the court, you know, showing these young guys how it's done and and watching them run. But
0: the,
12: the guy's competitive, even on a friendly pickup game. He's got the veins in his arms, big old calves, and he's super fit and in shape. and, And if you've seen pictures of him back when he played, certainly he was a house, you know, and a great athlete. Man, just the look on his face, the intensity of his face. You can see him throwing elbows and throwing people around and taking no prisoners. And you're like, he does this in every
5: aspect of his life, I think. I was in those games too with Casey, and he was a really good basketball player.
9: Dan Spencer, one of Pat's assistant coaches at OSU, called Pat Casey the best player of the whole group. But what showed the most was Pat's ruthless zeal for victory.
5: It was a war. He was trying to shut you out, and he was trying to score every point on the other club.
9: Oftentimes, Dan Spencer would be the one tasked with guarding Pat Casey.
5: I was not near the basketball player that Case was, but we had the same kind of competitiveness as far as I'm trying to keep him. When I'm doing everything, I'm holding him, I'm bumping him, I'm shoving him, I'm you know, whatever it is. And it was where he was irritated. We would get done with it. Everybody would take a shower. We'd eat lunch and have practice in 90 minutes. And it was just, let's go practice. But it was, uh, yeah, you're right on the edge of, you're not sure if there's going to be a fist fight.
9: Pat Casey played basketball in noon pickup games just like he was still in college. And he exuded the same ardent severity when playing basketball with his kids too.
16: On the basketball court, we'd, you know, when my dad was actually able to play, I remember me and my buddy, we'd always play. It was like a one-on-two game, and we would just go at it. My dad would get pissed if we beat him, and I'd get pissed if he beat me. So it was good, though. It was good.
9: A lot of the people I've talked with bring it up not just in baseball coaching, but they'll start talking about you playing basketball. <laughs> seemed like you were pretty competitive on the hardwood.
7: Well, you know, when you grow up like I grew up, you had to be competitive, you know? You had seven kids in one house and only enough food for five of us. So, you know, I had to, had to find a way out how to get her done. I think looking back on it, the biggest thing
2: with Coach Casey is that he very rarely talked about skills and approaches
9: and and stuff like that, that normal coaches, you know, usually do. Andy Armstrong was a sophomore infielder on the 2018 roster. Of course, he would give
2: you advice on how to hit or what's your approach at the plate or different things like that. But his main message was things like being fearless, going in the box, having confidence, wanting to tear someone's heart out. That's what he'd say. Hold up. Wanting to tear someone's heart out? I think he was down in Arizona in 2018. He said something pretty gruesome, like reach down and pull someone's heart out and eat it or something like that. And I don't know, it was something like that because he was fired up and he got everyone else fired up. And that was
9: just (laughs) one of those things. I don't know. This hardcore intensity infiltrated pretty much every area of Pat Casey's life. (music) One of the players, they're like,
4: dude, I've
12: never seen Coach Casey eat. And I got the biggest kick out of that because we're always around each other and there's food and spread. And I'm like, you're right.
1: Case would lose weight during the season because he just, he gets so invested in the games and like he's always thinking about the games that he forgets to eat. I don't know, he just
5: didn't feel like it on the weekends when we're playing, it wasn't he didn't eat much. From the time that Friday morning at home until the end of that series that was 27 innings and that was what was on his mind and that's how he handled it.
10: I've never seen him eat food, ever and it's like, Joe, Joe Casey would always joke about that and he's like, yeah, like my dad just doesn't eat. I'm like, don't you live with him? He goes yeah,
3: but I really don't ever see him eat. You would notice it his forms especially especially are huge in the fall and early in the spring. That was the dead giveaway for me that he was getting stressed out, but he's so competitive. He just, all he wants to do is win during the year. Yeah, it was crazy because I used to tell him, hey, look, I know you're pissed, but I'm hungry. We need, I need to go eat dinner.
5: Win or lose, I got to eat. It was kind of a running deal with us.
10: I saw him run around the hotel more than I ever saw him put food into his mouth. So guy's just a different breed.
5: Are we sure that he's human?
10: No. No, you know, I can't wholly say that's confirmed yet.
9: Apparently, Pat Casey is human because the physical toll each season took on him was noticeable. Over the course of the 2018 season, Pat lost 13 pounds. A nutritionist would probably cringe at that, but like Pat does with everything else, he used every angle he could to make his team better, even this. Early in the season, you know, everybody always knew Case lost a little bit of weight. He was going to be a little bit more angry.
12: And that's normally maybe when you're trying to be a little bit more relaxed is early in the season. And he just knew that there was going to be a point if he pressed us and he and he made sure everything was right, that at the end of the year, he could
9: relax. And he really did a good job of that. Another way Pat Casey's intensity helped was in recruiting. So I finally called all the other coaches and kind of told them like, hey, I've decided to go to, go to Washington State. Chris Pine graduated from Tualatin High School in 1995, the same spring that Pat Casey started coaching at OSU. Chris Pine had committed to play for Washington State, but Pat Casey wasn't ready to give up the fight. He said, let me come in for a house visit. He just basically
0: asked if he can come into my house. He was the only coach that didn't do a house visit. So I said, you know, fair enough. Let's let him come in. And about 10 minutes into it, I already told myself I'm going to Oregon State. That was it.
9: Chris Pine loved the fire of Pat Casey and felt he was a straight-shooting man of his word, so he flipped to Oregon State and became a first-team all-conference player as a freshman for the Beavers. If you ask Pat Casey who his first big recruit was at Oregon State, he would say Chris Pine. Pat Casey had lots of stories like this, of recruits hearing him speak one time and being so enveloped by his natural, robust metal that they'd want to commit on the spot. Dwight Jane still remembers when Pat Casey recruited his son at George Fox. It took one meeting before the younger Janes had his mind made up.
18: My son came out of the meeting and said, this is where I want to go. He said, yeah, I want to play for him.
9: Due to an injury, it never worked out for Dwight's son to play for Pat Casey. But the point is that Pat wore his heart on his sleeve, and a lot of people found his hard-nosed charm impossible to resist. I'm telling you, he could sell anything to anybody.
3: So, I love that intensity because I felt like
0: I
17: was the same way. When I stepped between that lines, you know, I got to pull my hat down and just really go after it. Coach Casey and I had definitely a love hate relationship. Him and I had very, very similar personalities, and we just, nobody's gonna be harder on us than ourselves. Casey and I are very, very similar.
9: There's a unifying theme among many Oregon State players over the years. For example, you just heard three of Pat Casey's players from three different decades, Chris Pine from the 90s, Seth Peach from the 2000s, Caden Grenier from the 2010s. And the unifying theme for these three players and many more is the players who got the most from Pat Casey, who are inspired by him and grow immensely even if they clashed with him at times, are the ones who most resembled Pat Casey. In other words, when Pat brought the intensity that we've been talking about, these 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 were the types of players who would match him step for step.
17: I always played more as a linebacker. That's probably why Coach Casey and I hit it off so well and so bad at the same time. I got out or struck out, everybody would know it and things would get broken and that was not good. I shouldn't have done it, but that's, that's just the way I played. I played
9: hard and wore my emotions on my sleeve. When players like Seth Peach came around, usually they are drawn to Pat Casey, which is good, but also sometimes explosive with two alpha dogs in the same room.
17: Playing for him, you know, it was frustrating for both of us because we both wanted so much for, you know, he wanted so much out of me and he pushed me to the limits. And I, you know, I feel like not just in my baseball career, but my success in business has contributed to how I was pushed in my college days.
9: Seth Peach is now the president of a Portland-area insurance agency. And while he remembers the frustrating moments of skirmishing with Coach Casey, he also recognizes the benefit. When two fiery people butt heads, it usually works out as long as there's mutual respect. There's definitely
17: a handful of times where him and I would
9: go up into his office during a game and close the door and
17: exchange you know, words back and forth. And then we would nod and just be like, OK, let's go. And so we would go back and do it.
9: It's players like Seth Peach who shared an intensity with Pat Casey where this sort of relationship worked. Yell at each other, then go back to the game and compete for each other. But there is a certain caveat that developed for Pat Casey that made things more difficult.
4: Case likes to reminisce about those players and those, those styles of coaching where you can just, you can get in a guy's face and you can, you can tell him exactly
9: how it is. Former player Max Gordon knows Pat Casey loves the in your face style of coaching, but the key word Max used is reminisce.
4: I hate to say it, not a lot of those guys exist anymore where you can just get in their face and they're going to get angry and do better despite you being mad at them.
9: That's not good for Pat Casey, because that's his M.O. Get after a player aggressively, get them mad, then they respond with some fire and play harder. Not every player has that fight in him, but the players who do, Pat Casey loves. Case loves it when he comes across a guy
4: that you get in their face and they want to fight you, and he's like, yeah, yeah, I miss miss guys like you.
9: That's why Kyle Noback's story was so significant. He had the classic tenacity and disposition Pat Casey loved to work with, but Kyle played in 2018, not on a team like the 2006 roster that was known more for its scrappy, hard-nosed players. So people always say, well, how do you compare the two? I would say Novak would fit on that
8: 06 club.
9: <laughs> <laughs> I think Novak fits on any club, especially a Pat Casey coach club. He's a hard guy. He's a bulldog. So Pat was elated to work with guys like Kyle Novak, and ultimately for Kyle, it worked out too. Because him and I were...
7: Probably very similar in, in some of our ways of expressing our emotions. He was an easy guy for me to have a good time with. But I know Kyle. He's a hardhead,
5: and the guys that played the best at Oregon State in those years were hardheads.
9: Over time, though, players like Kyle Novak became more rare, and because of that, Pat Casey couldn't keep coaching the same way. I talked to Casey about this,
4: he's like, "That was an adjustment. Like I had to make. I wouldn't survive in the coaching world if I can't uh, see that. Like I'm just." breaking kids left and right like they don't respond to
19: that at the beginning of his coaching career you know he wanted a lot of guys who were like him you know would get upset if guys didn't you know weren't as fiery and he realized that someone can be just as good not having that same mentality well they have the same mentality just different
9: personality as joe casey puts it his dad pat found it easier to coach guys who were like himself fervent passionate guys who would respond the way kyle noback did pat agreed with his son's assessment Well, Joe's pretty wise, you see,
7: because in those early years, you know, I always felt like if a guy didn't show that
9: competitiveness the way I did, that he didn't care as much as I cared. Now, it wasn't true. It wasn't true at all. To be fair to Pat, it's easy to coach someone who resembles you because you understand how they'll respond. The tough thing is coaching a guy with a different demeanor. I'm not talking about the guys who are lazy, I'm talking about players who are competitive but don't express it with the same demonstrative aggression. That brings us to a story that's a fascinating comparison to Kyle Noback. This other player was a teammate of Kyle Noback's, a friend of Kyle Noback. They even played the same position, left field, although they would often both be in the lineup because Kyle would be the designated hitter most of the time. Despite all those similarities, Pat Casey coached these two players with a vastly different method.
19: I've known Jack Anderson a long time. He played sports with my kids, and so I've known him a long time.
9: Charlie Sitton is most known for his legendary basketball career. The Oregon State Hall of Famer played in the early 80s for the Beavers. Incidentally comes from the same city as Pat Casey, McMinnville, Oregon. In fact, Charlie Sitton's mom and Pat Casey's mom went to school together. Anyways, this story isn't about Charlie Sitton. It's about a kid Charlie watched grow up in Lake Oswego, Oregon. Jack Anderson's story of going into Pat Casey's office and
19: saying, hey, you'll never play center field for me. You you need to go somewhere else. You're looking for a different type of person. And Jack walked on, kept working at it. He came all Pac-12, and then he ends up
9: starting in the championship game in center field. It It was really kind of a cool thing. That's Jack Anderson's story in a nutshell, but let's review it piece by piece. In one sense, Pat Casey did initially coach Jack Anderson in a fashion similar to Kyle Noback. He didn't sugarcoat it with either of them, and he told Jack Anderson he just wasn't good enough when Jack was a freshman. In fact, when Jack tried out for the team in 2014, Pat Casey cut him. Didn't even give him a walk-on spot. Jack spent a year at OSU just as a student. He came back for tryouts a year later, and made the team in 2015. Two years after that, Jack Anderson was a first-team all-conference player. Where Jack Anderson and Kyle Novak's stories diverge is in how Pat Casey coached them once they were both on the team. I was in a whole different boat than Novak.
13: If we treated Jack the same way that we treated Kyle, I don't think Jack would have been as good a baseball player as he ended up being here in Oregon. Stan, Kyle.
19: He knew that Novak and Jack didn't need to be coached the same, and he got everything out of both of them. Some people need to be
1: pat on the back and told them that they got this and they're loved and some people need to be screamed at.
9: Kyle Novak, as you know, got screamed at by Pat Casey. Jack Anderson, not quite as much.
0: I overthink things a lot and like, he doesn't have to tell me what I did wrong because I like know what I did wrong. So he just kind of let me be. And when I did struggle and did do things that, needed some touching up he would just tell me some things directly and he knew i'd be in the cage working on it he didn't have to kind
19: of badger me and get in my head like he did with kyle He knew how to coach Novak. He knew that he had to break Novak down at first and get in his head. When Novak, you know, figured that out and got out of it, he was going to be a great player. He knew with Jack, Jack was a loose guy and he was very high baseball IQ, very good off the field guy. He knew with him, it was more of a, he would get on him, but it was more of a friendship. You know, he didn't get on him as much. And it was like, they respected each other a ton. So he knows how to coach guys. And I think that's why he's so good. We're on completely different ends. Like if Case
0: did to me what he did to Novak, I don't know how long it would have lasted because Kyle just had that intensity that I think Case saw. Kyle's got a lot of Case in him, I think, with that.
9: Most of this revolves around how coaches correct their players. It's not a question of if your players will do something wrong. It's how you respond when they do make mistakes.
0: He has his standards and his foundation is in winning and competitiveness. And once you show that to him that you have that, he's going to be able to figure you out and figure out what works best for you.
7: Jack Anderson, he's easy to coach. I mean, Jack's going to come out and do absolutely everything you ask him to do over and over to
9: the best of his ability. Now, just because Jack already was diligent and Pat wasn't as harsh with him as he was with Novak, that still doesn't mean Pat Casey completely dropped the whole aggressive coaching technique.
4: Well, first of all, Case was not easy on Jack. He was not easy on anybody
9: As shortstock Caden Grenier can attest to, Jack didn't get it easy by any means. He just wasn't knocked around as much as Nobeck. But in a sense, to get anything less than 100% aggression from Pat Casey is saying a lot. And it's not like Pat Casey coaches every guy the same way each practice. Even with individual players, he knew when to get after a guy and when a player was being hard enough on himself already.
4: We had this great dynamic where Case wasn't too dead on, just screaming at me and stuff, because I think he really understood that I was already so mad, just pissed off at myself, that him getting on me more wasn't going to help the situation.
9: Pat's ability to be naturally 100% aggressive, but able to dial it back when appropriate, is why Pat got both the Kyle Nobacks of the world and the Jack Andersons of the world to realize their full potential even if Pat used variegated avenues to accomplish that. He would always tell
19: me you have to know that you can't coach two players the same and everyone's different. There's guys who are going to compete just as hard and care just as much as other guys, but they're going to be looser. And then there's guys who are going to be uptight and, you know, really like fiery. So he always told me that you have to know who you're coaching.
17: Coach Casey had a good understanding of what players he could push and know that he wouldn't push those players away. You have to navigate those waters carefully because not every player is gonna be able to handle that.
11: Coach Casey would treat every single player a little bit differently depending on their personality, the way they operate, all things like that. He was not universal in the way he would treat everyone.
1: That's something I that made him so special is he could motivate pretty much anybody. He would make me brush my teeth as good as I possibly could because I didn't want to upset him.
14: It isn't a cookie cutter philosophy. I think you have to understand and know each each kid individually and you have to put expectations on how you want them to play, how you want them to act, and then also get to know the person individually or you're never gonna really probably reach it.
1: He really got to know everyone on such a personal level that he knew exactly what would motivate guys and knew every single guy on the team exactly how to approach that person.
3: There's some kids and they're not gonna respond the same way to getting a fire lit under their butt. And he got really, really good at identifying those guys.
13: That was probably one of his greatest strengths, figuring out how a guy ticked and getting him to make the most out of his God-given talent. The word coach
7: is so much different than the word manage. You manage in the big leagues. You know, you manage superstars, you manage lineups. In college baseball, you coach, you
9: teach, you parent.
4: It is a situation where you do push.
9: Another coach who learned this process before Pat Casey was his predecessor, longtime coach Jack Riley.
4: You learn to who you can push and who you can't, and that's a lot of
9: Pat's success. For Pat Casey, sometimes his butt pats and
15: butt kickings would happen in the same game. First pitch, I show bunt and I jab at it and foul it off. Which Case takes the bunt off and I hit a homer. He basically baited me a pitch right down the middle for me.
9: Darwin Barney hit a go ahead two run home run in the 2007 National Championship game. Of course, he got a pat on the butt from Pat Casey after that, but Case was also ready to apply a butt kicking whenever necessary.
15: Next at bat, same thing. Except I swing when I shouldn't have, and I rolled into a double play, and he chewed me out. Yeah. <laughs> so, and I'm sitting there like, dude, I just hit a bomb, like, <laughs> you know. So he's all feel. That's the beauty of him, and that's why he's so good at what he did. Is you know, in college, you really got to feel your guys out, know where they're at.
9: Coach Casey is all feel, as Darwin puts it, and he got really good at feeling out when to pat and when to kick. But that wasn't always true of Pat Casey. We'll come back to that thought in sixty seconds.
8: This podcast gives free advertising to charities, including Kingdom Home.
9: So Kingdom Home, our goal is to end
0: child sex trafficking through prevention. We want to meet the physical, emotional, spiritual, and educational needs of boys and girls in our homes who are at risk of entering the sex
8: trade. This is former Oregon State pitcher Matt Boyd. Matt and his wife Ashley established Kingdom Home in 2018.
0: It's really, really special. It's just children who are living as children should just pure joy, knowing that they will have a future going forward.
8: Kingdom Home provides kids in Uganda with a safe place to live, access to education, and a path to either college or vocational training. With three homes for girls and another for boys, Kingdom Home is transforming the lives of over 100 kids. We're
0: trying to equip leaders of tomorrow to hopefully make an impact in their way in their country.
8: To learn more about Kingdom Home and how you can help, go to kingdomhome.org. That's kingdomhome.org.
7: I hear a lot of people say I wouldn't change anything, you know, and I, I'm just not a good enough coach to tell you that I wouldn't have changed. There's a lot of things I would have changed.
9: Pat Casey may feel most comfortable when coaching with his natural innate passion and fire. Normally, Pat Casey's intensity is his best attribute, but sometimes it could be his worst. I think I made a lot of mistakes in coaching
7: due to my competitiveness. I think there are times that my competitiveness culminated with built up anger over you know,
9: losing a game, that kept me from communicating better. The solution to that for Pat Casey was not to stop being competitive. That would be like trying to fix a car by removing the engine. No, Pat didn't stop being competitive, but he did change. I think he became a, a lot better coach throughout the years. At the beginning of his career, I'd say he, he just
16: had one way of coaching, and then as it went on, he figured out how to coach different styles and different people. I
5: think Pat's different now than he was in 1997.
4: He changed after his first seven, eight years, and then by his tenth year, they were off to the
9: World Series. Coach was quite a bit different in his later years than he was in his first four years. Ryan Leip played for Pat Casey the first four years Pat was at OSU, back when Pat Casey was still getting used to coaching players who weren't as naturally talented as Pat himself had been. Things just came easy to him where, you know, for me, it didn't
12: come quite as good as some other guys. And, and he would say, you know, the guys, only got one speed. What's the deal? I go, that one speed, 95 miles an hour, and he throws a slider with it. <laughs> I can't tell the difference. But coach was
9: at the time just very intense. And he had more patience, I think, for different abilities and as he got a little bit older. Patience was one of the biggest things he had to develop over the years, especially as a coach who expects excellence and is disappointed when he doesn't see it. Yeah, I mean, I played for him and I coached under him. Case is, he's really changed over the years. Andy Jenkins played for Pat Casey in the mid-2000s and then coached with Pat for seven years. I think once he got the
12: right kind of groups, the right kind of recruits, the right kind of
9: kids that, that made me fit his brand of baseball, I think he could sit back a little bit more. Casey got more and more top-level recruits in the mid-2000s, which can make it easier on a coach, but there were also some hidden consequences compared to the rosters from the 90s, comprised of more local guys who weren't as highly recruited. The guys that he
12: recruited at that time were all just tough as nails. You know, we had to be. He wasn't getting the the blue-chip recruits, so we had to be tougher than everybody. When you go to Omaha and you win it and you win it, now you're up in the northwest in this little place called Corvallis. and now you're on the national scene for baseball, and these kids are following Oregon State, and, and they're reaching out from Texas and Florida, and they want to be a part of what they saw on TV.
8: The recruiting for the Beavers has opened up as well. The trips to Omaha bring players like Grenier and Madrigal and Lornick, not just the Northwest kids. Two things come from that. One, you're getting elite talent.
12: And two, you're getting kids from different parts of the country that maybe aren't as, as tough as the kid from Hermiston or the kid from John Day or the, the kid from, uh, you know, just outside Portland or something. And then you get a lot of blue chippers, you know, they kind of like to coddle a little bit, you know? So I think he changed his approach as he got a little older. He's that Northwest rooted guy, you know what I mean? That was tough and, and, and had that old school. So when you're getting those Northwest kids in, in 2005, I think he felt probably a little bit more at home with who he was coaching and the type of kids he was coaching. And, and I think... He probably made some mistakes in eight, nine, ten, getting kids that were really talented and, and didn't have the makeup to play for him. But nationally, they were big draft picks, or they were
9: you know guys that you don't want to miss on. If you look at the rosters in the years following, it's clear Pat Casey's solution wasn't to stop recruiting players from out of state. He kept recruiting both in and outside the Pacific Northwest, but he didn't keep making the same mistakes. You still had guys out of town. You had Southern California kids. You had a Vegas kid in Grenier who was certainly tough on himself and had a little bit of swagger, and and Case was great with him. As Andy Jenkins pointed out moments earlier, the fulcrum of Pat Casey's career in many ways was the mid-2000s when Oregon State won those two national championships. Just as much as it changed Oregon State baseball forever, it also changed Pat Casey. And maybe no player impacted him more than a certain second baseman from that era.
18: I think Darwin Barney was the first guy that was ever able to kind of handle him and tone him down a little bit.
7: Oh, Darwin had the best personality in the world. I mean, Darwin made me enjoy the game.
9: Darwin Barney is not only one of the greatest Beaver baseball players of all time, he's also got a playful attitude.
7: I can remember one time he's out there BSing with the opponent at second base I and mean, we're on defense and the guy just comes in a second I look at it, they go, what do you got going on man, what are you guys going to go out to dinner or what, you know, and Darwin comes in and taps me, hey coach, we got him, don't worry about him, you know, he was awesome, he made me relax, he, he knew what my motor was and he knew how intense I was and I think he was intense also, he was intense in a different way, I think he was able to gear me down a little bit and he was also able to understand me better.
9: Pat Casey coached hundreds of players at Oregon State, and each one impacted him in at least some way or another. It's no competition, but Darwin Barney maybe wins the prize for making the biggest impact on Case, but either way, there's another individual who deserves credit for helping shape Pat Casey, and this wasn't someone in his locker room, it was someone in his own home. Pat Casey and his wife Susan have four kids. The youngest, Joe, has been on Oregon State's baseball team since 2017. They also have a daughter, Ellie, and another son, Brett, who was on the national title teams in 06 and 07. Then there's the oldest, Jonathan, who was also in Omaha in 2006 and 2007 for the national championships, but not as
14: a player. I was like every other parent. My son was going to be the quarterback on the team or whatever, or you dreamed of that, or you want that. He wasn't going to be. I'm just one of those blessed people that has fortunate to have an amazing wife and amazing children and have a unique child in Jonathan. And when you have a child like Jonathan, you know, the first thing you think about is, you know, why, maybe why does that have to happen to him or why does that have to happen to us or... You know, that's so bad, that's so unfortunate. They start calling them special needs kids. There's no specific diagnosis
9: that Jonathan has ever received, but it doesn't really matter. The point is just that he interacts with people in his own way. He doesn't always show affection easily, and he's not going to be a star athlete. But I tell you what, Pat Casey experienced something significant about Jonathan and the other amazing people like him.
14: Really, you don't discover that they need you, you
9: need them. That may be true in multiple ways, but for Pat Casey, he changed as a person and as a baseball coach because of his son Jonathan. After all, Pat Casey became better at coaching the players who had a different background and different personality than him, right? Well, a big reason why that happened was because Pat raised a son who didn't always have the same demeanor as him or the same way of expressing himself.
5: There's no doubt about that, that John changed him, and Case was different, where you could see the other side of him. You could see, if you didn't know it, then obviously I did, older, but the kids don't always see it. They see one side. This is former assistant coach Dan Spencer. When you saw Case around John, you realize, oh, I got it. No, this is a different deal. And it's not just because John was his son, but but John had, you know, there were some different things about John, obviously,
9: uh, gifts, and there was a different side of Pat when he was around John. Most of all, Pat Casey loves his son to death, all of his kids for that matter, and I know that being a father and being a coach are two different things, but Pat Casey doesn't downplay how impactful his own son has been on him both as a father and as a coach.
14: It helped me out because I was someone that played sports my whole life and someone who always had, for some reason, passion for the underdog, but probably never thought that I might have a child that wouldn't end up being someone who's gonna be playing sports on a regular basis and have success. So, man, the reality of that helped me as a coach, helped me as a human being, it helped me as a person, it helped me as a man, it helped me understand other people that maybe I never even dreamed of that would go through some of those situations because, you know, I never faced those things. He's
16: changed my dad, he's changed my grandpa for sure. My grandpa, he's kind of like my dad, but even he was, you know, a tough guy to be around um, a lot of the time. And John, he just seen John grow up, I think has changed him and made him put life in perspective because, you know,
9: John doesn't have the abilities that everyone has, but he gets the most out of what he has for sure. Brett Casey would even go as far as saying Pat became better at coaching players like Jack Anderson because of Pat's experience being a dad to his oldest son, Jonathan.
16: John's not someone you can really, you know, get after that much. So I think, yeah, he's probably over the years, you know, as John's gotten older and um, my dad's learned how to deal with him, you know, in certain ways. And then that I think transfers over to players being able to, okay, this guy,
9: I have to take a little little lighter, a little, be a little more mellow with them. Jonathan may have never become a star athlete, but sports still played a huge role in his relationship with his father. In fact, remember how Ben Wetzler shared how Pat Casey considered retiring in 2012? Wetzler believes the very same reason that Pat Casey considered retirement was also the same reason he decided to stay.
3: He's such a family man. He realized that he wanted to spend more time with with his kids and watch them grow up even more. But what he didn't realize was how much the team
9: and that program meant to them as well. That's what kept him around. And there's no one in the family who cared more about Beaver baseball than Jonathan.
16: He's the number one fan. I mean, it doesn't matter what sport either. You name it, he's the number one fan, and everyone in this
8: town knows him. Everyone loves him. John Casey is uh, leading the cheers out in front of the Beaver dugout.
5: John was always in our dugout. I mean, he was there from the good times and the bad times. John was there. And then he was going on the road, and it was great. It was great to
16: have John the friendliest guy out there and he knows everyone by name, he always, you know, anyone walks by, hey, yeah, John is just the number one fan and he's pretty much the the mayor of this town, I guess, right?
9: (laughs) (laughs) I'd vote for him for mayor if, (laughs) if I had that shot. Jonathan was even a team manager on the Oregon State men's basketball team years ago. Beaver basketball, men's or women's, baseball, football, doesn't matter, Jonathan is the number one fan.
19: I think it's been the best thing for him. Honestly, like he loves sports. It gives him something to do and it gives him something to
9: like care about and have a passion for. The best example of that would be when Oregon State won the national championship in 2006. Pat Casey remembers his son Jonathan rushing to his father during the celebration, and Pat says that's the first time he remembers Jonathan hugging him and saying, I love you. John's not a very
19: sentimental kind of guy. The only few times I see him get emotional, you know, are in those games or the years after we won it, you know, him hugging my dad on the field. That doesn't happen a ton, and you can just tell that that moment was created because of him being able to enjoy a game and be at the World Series. And I think those moments are really special for him and like big, big part in their relationship.
9: This has been episode one of Dynasty in the Woods. Next week on episode two, we'll look at some players from the 2018 team and see how their development paralleled one another in a very specific manner. New episodes come out once a week, but this is going to be a pretty long series, 18 episodes in total, which means you won't be able to finish the podcast for about four months, but you can gain access to the entire documentary series right now by becoming a premium member or by donating any amount of money to one of the charities I'm sponsoring on this podcast. To learn more, there's a link in the show notes. I've been your host, Josh Warden. Please give me any feedback or let me know that you listened. My email is also in the episode description. Please leave a rating for this podcast and share with any friends who would enjoy hearing this. Radio broadcast clips used with permission from Learfield IMG College. Some audio provided by the Oregon State University Sesquicentennial Oral History Project. Special thanks to Chris Peterson. Thank you to 1240 Joe Radio for usage of the studio and some audio clips as well. Finally, a thank you to all the kind individuals who agreed to an interview. Again, I'm Josh Warden. Talk with you next week.